Good morning, church. Privileged to be here this morning. I got to speak in the 8.15, 9.30 service, but this is a service my family and I regularly come to. So it's nice to look out and see some familiar faces. I'm always honored to fill in a time or two for Pastor Ty when he needs to get away to Vegas for the weekend. So uh, he's up front just in case, wave, and I don't want any rumors being spread. Um, I had a question for you, and I actually want you to answer what, what first comes to your mind. What do you love? What do you love? Jesus. Family. Music. Your grandma. Kind of can't top that. I feel like I should stop. Anything else? What do you? Your mom. Guacamole. Every service somebody has said food. It is that time of year, isn't it? It's interesting what first comes to mind when we ask what we love. I, was, uh, I have three kids, son is 14, my daughter's 11, and I have a son who's six. And about two years ago, I took my youngest son in the morning, kind of set work aside, took him out to local coffee shop to spend five bucks on a muffin and coffee. Actually, it was Starbucks, eight bucks on a muffin and coffee. And I was just sitting there talking with him, spending time with him. He's, I think he's about four at the time. And this guy who might have been about 10, 15 years older than I was, he leans over to me and he just says, you know, good for you for spending this time with your kids. I said, oh, thanks. Why do you say that? He goes, you know, all my kids are grown and they're out of the house. He said, I'm a realtor and I sacrificed a lot of money. And he paused and he goes, a lot of money to be with my kids. And I look back, it was totally worth it. I thought, you know, because this guy loves his kids. That was important to him. He sacrificed his treasure to be with them. In fact, I would actually say his sacrifice reveals what he really loves. Because talk is cheap, isn't it? We can say we love food, Jesus, whatever comes to our mind. But the best way to know what we love is not really what we say but what we sacrifice for. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will be, no. He says, actually, if you wanna know where somebody's heart is, look at where they spend their time, how they spend their money, their energy, their resources, because that reveals what this person really values and this person really loves. So you can say, oh, I love my spouse, but if you don't spend time and energy sacrificing for your spouse, are you really loving your spouse? You can say it's about your kids, about your grandkids, about a job or something even more important like the Lakers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm a Spurs fan. But if you honestly say, hey, I love the Lakers, but you don't ever watch them, you don't buy gear, you don't spend any time and track them, do you really love a sports team? That's a fair question to ask. It's a fair question to ask. Now, I saw this poster that was interesting, but also kind of convicting. It came through social media, and it was a poster put up at a kid's soccer game in Georgia. So imagine this huge banner put up just at a kid's soccer game, like elementary kids, and it said this. These are kids. This is a game. 
most coaches are volunteers. The referees are human. <laughs> no college scholarships will be awarded today. <laughs> now, why did they post this? Because all of us are tempted to have misplaced values and to love the wrong things. There's nothing wrong with, wrong with loving competition or loving athletics and sports, but sometimes we miss what matters most and we love the wrong things. See, we talk about in church a lot what we believe. I teach here part-time in Bible classes. I teach at Talbot School of Theology at Biola and spend my time talking with people what do we believe about the resurrection, about Jesus, the end times, et cetera. This is what I do. But we don't spend as much time talking about what we love. Because I think, yes, we act out of what we believe, but we actually really act out of and sacrifice for what we love. And for some reason recently, I've been paying attention to the way the world teaches us to love. So right now, we're being told to love certain things, right? It's Black Friday. Go to the mall or get online. You don't even have to go to the mall anymore. Walk around the mall. The mall is teaching us how to love, isn't it? You see people who have things that you and I don't have, and they're smiling, and they look so fulfilled and happy. It teaches us if you buy this consumer good, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. It's teaching us to love something. I think about the news. What does the news do? It tells the world it's so horrible, but if you get this right candidate or this right policy, love the idea that politics can solve our biggest problems. What is social media doing? It's really kind of teaching us to love ourselves. How many clicks we get, how much attention people pay to us, how do we compare with somebody else, put your best picture forward. So yes, it's important what we believe, but do we pay attention to what we love? Because when I asked what you love, nobody said, yeah, I don't love anything. Everybody loves something. Maybe you do love Jesus. Maybe you do love guacamole, so I'm with you on that. Maybe you do love your grandma. Wonderful answer. But the reality is, Jesus said, we all love, but we're tempted to love the things that are not the most valuable. That's what this teaching is about this morning, is Jesus is challenging his disciples, and Matthew writes this in a way that we get to kind of peer in and be listeners and ask ourselves the same question. Do we understand what is most valuable? Do we sacrifice for it? And are our loves oriented in the right way? So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 13. Sometimes I love using slides. Sometimes I'm like, let's just open up the Bible old school and talk about this. Matthew chapter 15. If you can't find it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Matthew. <laughs> if you didn't get that, we have deeper problems. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to start. Now, before we dive into this passage, I know you're turning there, the Talbot professor in me always says, what's the context of this teaching? And when I read the passages before and thought about Matthew as a whole, there were some insights that came out to me that I had missed, even though the parables we're looking at this morning are parables we've all heard. So what's kind of the wider context that's going on? Well, the passages before, 12 and 13, are about the identity of Jesus. And notice what Matthew says. Now, remember, Matthew's gospel was probably written to a Jewish audience, so he keeps appealing to the Old Testament. 
and how Jesus fulfills the types of the Old Testament prophecy. So in the passages before, we're told that Jesus is greater than the temple. Now just think about that. In that time, they're saying, here's a person greater than the temple. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's a healer. He's more powerful than demons. He's greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, and he's the son of man. So right before this teaching, we're told this person, Jesus, greater than Jonah, greater than the Sabbath, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple. He can heal, cast out demons. And son of man didn't mean he's human. It was actually a divine term that he's God in human flesh. So they're setting up this teaching, telling us clearly who Jesus is. And then it gives eight parables. We're going to look at four. But then you know what comes right after it? It's what Pastor Ty is teaching on next week. The rejection of Jesus from his hometown and the death of John the Baptist. Isn't that interesting? Here's the greatest person who's ever lived, the biggest authority, the only person you should worship, the greatest value to know this person. You have a question, you're going to follow him. If you do, it might lead to rejection and it might lead to your own life. That's the setting in which this teaching takes place. Now, the physical setting is actually also really important as well. Jesus teaches four parables. If you look at 13 verses 1, so flip to the first part of chapter 13. Matthew 13 verse 1 says, That same day Jesus went out of the house, so he's leaving the house and sat behind the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So he got into the boat, and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. So you can imagine a scene. Imagine if I'm teaching kind of like Jesus. I'm in a boat, so here's a little bit of water, and then here's everybody out on the shore kind of looking in. Now, why did Jesus do this? The reason he did it is because Jesus is really, really smart. It's important to pay attention not just to what Jesus says, but to what Jesus does. He was a masterful communicator. My undergrad degree was in communication, and if you just look at Jesus as a communicator, he would teach on a hill to project his voice up the hill. Why did he teach on the water? Because he didn't have a microphone. Obviously, he could have, like, materialized one because he's God, but he's using the resources that are available, and the water projects his voice. So in the four parables before this, Jesus speaking to all the crowds But then the context shifts. So look in verse 36. 13 verse 36. Now it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parables of the wheats of the fields. So now it happens. He's speaking to everybody for the first four parables. That's his audience. And then the four parables we're looking at, he leaves everybody, goes into his house. And he's only speaking to his disciples. Now, these parables, which you know, the pearl of great price, the hidden treasure, etc., you've heard these parables probably you know, a thousand times. But he delivers them. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not recorded in Luke, Mark, John. It's only the Gospel of Matthew. And he's delivering this in a house to his closest disciples. That's the audience in which he speaks these parables. Now, let's jump in and take a look at these parables. So we're in chapter 13, verse 44. Starts off, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, remember in his joy, 
He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, why, tell him I'll call him back, why does this person bury the treasure? Why do they bury it? And the answer is this technology that you and I have that people took for granted, that we take for granted, that throughout the history of the world, most people didn't have, and it's called a safety deposit box. You ever thought how amazing it is to have a safety deposit box? For that to work, you have to be able to trust the government, right? You have to be able to trust the banks. You have to be able to trust security. We take this for granted. Most people throughout the history of the world didn't have something like a safety deposit box for whatever they considered their treasures. So I remember my father in the 90s would lead trips into Russia around the time, the late 80s into like the mid-late 90s, the time communism was falling. I got to go 13 times to Russia. First time was in 89 or 90 when I was in eighth grade, and communism had not officially ended yet. And people there had treasures, but they didn't trust the government. So what would they do with it? I remember meeting people who said, we had money. The only place we could put it is in or under our mattress. <laughs> that was it. And then sadly, as communism fell, hyperinflation, their treasures, many of them became worthless overnight. So as archaeologists go around the, time, the area of Jerusalem, they think there might be a chance I would uncover a buried treasure. In fact, arguably the greatest archaeological treasure ever discovered was north of the Dead Sea. I'm giving you a really big hint here. It's called what? Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's this group called the Essenes, this strict uh, kind of Jewish group that had all these ancient documents. And when Israel was, when, not when Israel, when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in AD 70, they went and buried them in these caves outside of the Dead Sea. 1947, two Bedouin shepherds were out just tending sheep, kind of climbed up the side of this hill. One throws a rock inside and hears something shatter. Well, there's different stories where they went in that day or they came back the next morning, but they climbed down inside and to their deep disappointment, they just find these old scrolls. You know what the irony is? They uncovered arguably the most valuable archaeological treasure ever, and they completely did not understand what they found. Can you imagine that? They had dozens of Old Testament manuscripts that were a thousand years earlier than physical manuscripts anybody had, including the great Isaiah scroll that's almost identical to the Masoretic text a thousand years later. So they sell it to someone for nothing, sell it to someone for almost nothing. Eventually, William Albright, an archaeologist, finds this. He goes, wait a minute. This might be the greatest archaeological find ever. So they come across a treasure, but don't understand the value of what they found. They missed it. So here's a man in a field. The interesting point is he's not looking for the treasure. He's not trying to find it. He just comes across it, and then sells everything he has in his joy to get the treasure, because he understands its value. In one sense, this is like the Apostle Paul. He wasn't looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, he thought he already had it and was persecuting the kingdom of God. 
But then God steps in, he realizes the value of the kingdom of God, and in a sense sells everything to follow after Jesus. Now the passage I have to point out quickly, it says the man in his joy goes and sells everything. This wasn't drudgery, it wasn't duty. What Jesus is saying, when you understand the value of the kingdom, it's natural and joyful to do this, which is why Paul writes in Philippians 2, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, which means sacrificed, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, this is from a prison in Rome to the church in Philippi, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Can you imagine that? I'm about to be put to death, but I rejoice with you because he understood the value of the treasure. Now, before we move to the next one, it, as a kid, I used to read this, and I kind of think, wait a minute. This guy uncovers a treasure, but then he doesn't tell the owner, and he buys the field. Is he being sneaky to the owner? What exactly is Jesus telling us to do? And, and as I read this, I think that's not the questions we're supposed to ask about this parable. We can only take parables so far. The point is, Jesus is saying, this man stumbles across this treasure. It's so great, he sells everything to get the treasure and joyfully gets to experience its benefit. That's the point. Now he moves on to a second parable, verse 45 and 46. It starts by saying, again, and look, by the way, whenever a passage says again, what's it doing? It's tying this teaching to the teaching before. So Jesus is kind of repeating the same point here, right? We repeat things that are important. We repeat things that are important. We repeat things. I'm just kidding. I'll stop there. I said that to Ty at the beginning. He goes, you could say that again. <laughs> what Jesus is actually doing here, actually Matthew's doing with Jesus, is he's making the point through a parable, and then he tells another parable that essentially makes the same point. He's basically saying, in case you didn't get it with exhibit A, check out Exhibit B. This is a common thing that parents do, right? Let me come up with as many possible ways to make this idea sink in as I can. That's basically what Jesus is doing. So it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, look, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price are basically the same point, meaning somebody comes across a treasure and they understand the value of it and they sell everything to get it. You've got to love the right things and sacrifice for it. But there are a couple differences here. In the first one, it seems the man just stumbles across it. He's not looking for it. In the second one, it's a man specifically looking for a pearl of great price. Have any of you ever been looking for something like a hidden pearl or gold or diamonds? Because I have. You know Arkansas is the diamond state? It's actually known for diamonds. And I was there speaking at camp summer before last, and my son was with me. He was about four or five at the time. And we discovered that about an hour and a half away is what's called, uh, I think, Crater, Dim Crater Diamond National Park. Under the ground is a volcano. It's like 100 to 150 feet below ground. And this is how diamonds are naturally made. And it pushes up slowly into this field. And if I remember, it looked like four or five or six football fields, kind of that's how big it was. And they go through there every few days. 
with some kind of like tractor, uh, you kind of until the ground. And then if you pay like $5, you get a little wooden grate with wood on the side and like a screen mesh in the middle. And you go looking for diamonds and you get to keep everything you find. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So it's like July in Arkansas. So I'm like, I get my son, I'm like, you want to go searching for diamonds? And he's five. He's like, dad, let's go find a treasure. He was all in for about 10 minutes. <laughs> After every, I mean, I kid you not, he'd be like, oh, dad, look at this. Whoa, dad, look at this. And 10 minutes later, dad, I'm tired. I'm hot and I'm thirsty. I'm like, okay, it was fun for 10 minutes. We didn't find anything. The next day, I read the local news and somebody found a multi-carat diamond and they just get to keep it. Now, what's interesting is the first guy in the parable who finds a treasure, it seems that he's out working in the field for somebody else and just stumbles across it. The merchant of pearls is out looking actively for this hidden treasure. So they make the same point, but I think this difference is important. What is Jesus essentially saying? Whether you are looking for the kingdom of God or you stumble upon it, the kingdom of God is for everybody. No matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter where you're from or your background, it is the greatest value and everybody is invited to sacrifice for it and enjoy the benefits. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, part of the question when I read it is this. What exactly is the pearl of great price? What is the hidden treasure? What is it? I think we better get it right if it's something we're supposed to sell everything and get. Now, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not material gain and physical blessing in this life in the way we in America tend to interpret this. That's not it. You say, wait a minute, he's talking about a pearl. Pearls are valuable. He's talking about a treasure. Isn't it material gain? Yeah, but he's telling a story. How do we know Jesus is not saying, if you just follow me, I'll give you a great house, I'll give you money, I'll bless your health, you'll live a long, rich life. You know how we know this? Because the next passage, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, and then John the Baptist, the great forerunner, in prison is beheaded. <laughs> He's not saying the prosperity gospel. That's not the point. So it's a mistake to say it's entirely blessing in this life alone. You know what else is a mistake? To say he's only talking about heaven in the future. I think that's also a mistake. Because the man who found the pearl and the man who found the treasure experienced its benefits immediately, didn't they? So it's not just the present. It's not just the future. It's something that begins in the present and continues for eternity. What is the pearl great price? What is the treasure? I almost feel embarrassed saying it because it's so simple, yet it's profound and we miss it. You know what it is? The pearl of great price is that you and I as fallen sinners can be in relationship with the living God. That's the pearl of great price. Look what Paul writes. He says, I certainly count all things to be sheer loss because of the all-surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the pro great price. About a month ago, I, I mentioned I teach here part-time some Bible classes. 
I call it the local Mormon ward, the church, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I said, hey, would somebody be willing to come and speak in our class and talk about what you believe in your theology? And a fellow I've actually known, he came about eight or 10 years ago, came back, did a presentation right here, using our slides up on front, talked about essentially what he believes makes the Mormon church unique and invited the students to think about it. Now, the next day we spent a lot of time debriefing and talking it through, but there's one interesting thing he said. He said, what sets Mormonism apart is if you, fall, you get married in the temple and you follow certain prescriptions, you can get married and stay married to your spouse for eternity in heaven. He says, I wouldn't want to be in heaven if I couldn't be with my wife. Now, afterwards, one of the other Bible teacher here, Dana Dill, who you know used to be the youth pastor for years, he said something that hit me. He said, you know what? How sad. He said, he seems to think the greatest part about heaven is a human relationship. Dana said, I wouldn't want to be in heaven if I couldn't be with Jesus. I thought, oh my goodness. Heaven is about being with the body of Christ and human relationships. But the greatest part is that we actually get to be with Jesus. That's the pearl of great price. That's the hidden treasure. The reality is, all of us are willing to trade something in for something more valuable, aren't we? Even as kids, we're always trying to trade somebody out of a toy for a toy we think is more valuable. Well, there's a game that youth groups will often play. It's called Bigger and Better. And what happens is, say you take a youth group and you can go to the park, you could go downtown, you can go to the beach, and everybody starts with an item that has minimal value. And you have an hour or a limited period of time, and basically at the end of the time, whoever comes back with the most valuable item wins. Now you can't buy, you can't steal, obviously, but you just go up to people and say, hey, I've got this item. Would you be willing to trade me for something just slightly more valuable because I'm playing a game? So I have a paperclip. Would you be willing to give me like chapstick? I have chapstick. Would you be willing to give me, you know, whatever's more valuable than chapstick? And the idea at the end of the hour, whoever has the biggest gift wins and the best. Well, a 26-year-old man from Montreal had no job. I will resist the urge to make jokes about millennials but he wanted a house. So in one year and 14 trades, he went from a paperclip to a house. Posted it online. He said, I'm playing bigger and better. Starting with a paperclip. One year later, had a house. Now, how did he get there? He started with a paperclip. He traded it for a fish pen. Traded the fish pen for a handmade doorknob. Traded the handmade doorknob for a camp stove. Traded a camp stove for a 100-watt generator. Traded a 100-watt generator for an empty keg and an illuminated sign that said Budweiser. <laughs> Some of you are thinking he should have stopped there. <laughs> Traded the Budweiser sign for a snowmobile. Traded the snowmobile with an afternoon with rock star Alice Cooper. Traded, I made a mistake in the first sermon saying that he was the lead singer of Kiss, so I'm anticipating... <laughs> All of these emails, so just. But what he did is he traded an afternoon with Alice Cooper for a Kiss snow globe, traded the Kiss snow globe for a paid role in a Corbin Burnson movie called Donna On Demand, and traded the paid role in a movie for a farmhouse in Saskatchewan. A paperclip to a house. He wins. 
Now, here's what's interesting. That's a pretty darn good deal, isn't it? That's a great deal. Some of you are thinking, I want to play this game. What exactly are the rules? How can I jump on the bandwagon? But I want to ask you a question. Were you more amazed that somebody could go from a paperclip to a house or the fact that Jesus says there's a hidden treasure knowing God that lasts for eternity? Because this story is pretty awesome. But as we've learned with our neighbors up north, with the fires, you can lose a house. You can lose a car. You can lose a human relationship. But knowing God, says Paul, is the all-surpassing excellence. A house pales in comparison to the value of knowing God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, there's another parable we'll jump into. Parable three, this is verses 47 through 50. It starts with him saying, again. So he's continuing the teaching on the kingdom of God, but now he makes a different point. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus says again, so he's continuing the teaching on the kingdom of God, but now he makes a very different point, doesn't he? Now he's saying, actually, in the present church age, what we consider the kingdom of God, there's all kinds of fish. But it's only at the end of the age that it'll really be sorted out. What are the good fish? And what are the bad fish? And this is a teaching all over the Gospel of Matthew. For example, in 722, people say to Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? He'll say, separate from me, I never knew you. What about in 715? They say, he says, beware of people who come as sheaves, but inwardly sheaves. You meant what I knew. <laughs> Come as sheaves, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. I guess a sheave is when you cry. I don't even know what a sheave is. That's what happens when you're tired. Jesus is making the point that before the kingdom of God is available to everybody, now he's saying everybody is going to be judged. Everybody. By the way, actually looked in the Sea of Galilee, and there's somewhere between 20 and 24 different kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee. So quite a variety of fish. When it says gathered every kind of fish, in the original language, it's more every kind of race, which is a weird way to describe fish. But the point that he's saying is the fish represent human beings. That no matter your background, no matter where you're from, your skin color, your socioeconomic status, your gender, all of us are going to be judged at some point in the end. So it's kind of like Jesus saying there's no middle ground. There's this pearl of great price. There's this treasure hidden in the field. And for those who reject it, there's judgment. And by the way, we kind of have this image of Jesus like he just played with sheep and he talked with kids and he affirmed every behavior, never judged anybody. You read what Jesus just said? He specifically described a place thrown into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus believed in the reality of hell. 
I don't like hell. If it was up to me, I'd get rid of it. It's a chilling thought to know that my loved ones could end up there. I don't like it at all. But Jesus is God. Remember, he's the son of man. He's greater than the temple. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the healer. He has power over demons. And he says, I'm gonna give you an option. You can love me and have the pearl great price or if you choose not to love me, this is the other result. And one of the most common questions I get as an apologist is all the time, how could a good God, how could a loving God send a good person to hell? That's a real question. My first answer is, God doesn't send any good people to hell because there's no such thing as a good person. Read Romans 3. Read Matthew, Mark chapter 7. There's only one good person, and by the way, he got crucified. So Jesus doesn't send good people to hell. But second, I don't think Jesus sends people to hell, or God does. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. You see what I think Jesus is saying? Love the most important things. Love the kingdom of God, which is loving God and loving other people. But you're not a robot. I'm gonna give you a choice. If you don't want to love me, if you don't want to value the things that are most valuable, and you don't want to spend eternity with me, you may have the result of your choice which is eternal separation from your creator. Friends, it goes back to what we love. Do we love the most important things? Then he gives a quick final parable. He writes this in 51 and 52. He says to the apostles, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And if you've actually been reading Matthew carefully, you'd understand that they're saying yes, but they don't really get it yet. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure what is new and what is old. What's Jesus saying? Again, remember to his disciples. He's saying the scribe who has the treasure remembers things of old. He's saying, I'm fulfilling prophecy. The Old Testament spoke of me, but there's also something new and fresh. The kingdom of God has broken in in the present and into the future. That's what he's saying with this parable. So let me read a quote from one of the leading New Testament scholars of today. His name is Craig Keener. He comes out with a commentary, I kid you not, like every year, a commentary in a biblical book. And he wrote this, and I read this multiple times through the lens of my own life, like, wow, these are, these are strong words. In his commentary on Matthew, he said this. He said, professed Christians who desire worldly wealth and status but are far less consumed with the furtherance of God's kingdom must reconsider the true state of their souls. When we preach that people who simply pray a prayer will automatically be saved from hell regardless of whether they truly commit their lives to Christ in trust that he is saving us from sin, we preach a message other than the one our Lord has taught us. So let me end back by just asking you a question that we started at the beginning. But don't answer out loud, just think to yourself, what do you love? What do you really love? In fact, 
what do your sacrifices of your time and your money and your energy reveal about what you love? Some gets to your calendar or your checkbook. What would they say this person loves? What do you sacrifice for? What do you consider the value of the kingdom of God? And if somehow this morning you're thinking, you know what? I've been tempted to love and believe and sacrifice for things that aren't ultimate. What changes might you need to make to get your life in line with the ultimate value, Jesus said, which is knowing God and loving him and loving other people? That's the question Jesus is asking in these parables. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your teaching. Thank you for sharing stories we can remember and loving us, but also sometimes just convicting us. I pray that we can ask the questions today, what do we love? What do we sacrifice for? And help us align our loves and our passions with you and the things that matter most. Pray you bless this church and the big moves and changes that are coming up. And we pray this in your name. Amen.